clean up the real estate here. And said, for the sake of our visitors, uh, our pastor Joseph White is traveling this weekend. My name is Chris Merkel. So welcome to the B team. Uh, if you came here expecting to hear Joseph, we'll be happy to fully refund your ticket price. So just see Julie after the service and we'll, we'll get that going. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to Romans. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And as you're doing that, uh, I, I, I want you to imagine yourself in the following scenario. Imagine working your entire adult life for a dishonest company, reporting directly to the CEO. You were led and influenced by corruption throughout your entire career. In fact, it's all you know. Every way you approach your job has been shaped by the demands and influence of dishonesty, selfishness, and every form of wickedness. But now, imagine that the company has been the target of a hostile takeover by an honorable team of investors who have overturned and reformed the company's business model. Imagine that the corrupt CEO is suddenly removed from office and replaced with an honest CEO. This new CEO is now your manager and mentor, radically transforming every aspect of how you do business and pursue your work. Except, oddly enough, the former CEO is still allowed to be on staff. But though he's present, he is utterly stripped of all authority and command all authority to command your actions. Nevertheless, he appeals to your memory of your past service to his corrupt agenda. He strives to influence your present behavior, even asserting himself as the chief executive he once was, but no longer is. But you know what? It's all empty bravado, bankrupt of any power to command or lead. And though noisy, and arrogant, he is defeated and irrelevant. Well, this little story helps us understand the scenario of indwelling sin in the life of a believer. A present threat that threats, a present threat that seeks to shipwreck our spiritual well-being, but only to the degree that we pay attention to sin's bravado. And as will be apparent from today's text, Sin no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer commands our obedience. Sin is dethroned. As Paul explains, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Our format this morning is very simple. We're going to pay careful attention to Paul's argument. Then we're going to discern the big picture of what it is Paul wants his readers to understand. And throughout our process, we'll consider the significance of the text for our lives today, ending with a specific application to help drive further thought upon the word. So let's read this morning's text. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall I say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him 
by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Pray with me as we dedicate our time to the Lord. Oh, Father, I know these words are plenty, but help us this morning just be able to walk through these carefully in a way, Lord, that really sets forth Paul's burden. And Lord, as we pray all the time, it's, it's not enough for us simply to be informed about what the word says. But we really, Lord, desperately depend upon you and your spirit to to minister true biblical transformation in our hearts, our minds and our wills. Lord, we don't want to just be smart about what the word says. We want our lives to be overhauled by grace so that our lives would be badges of your glory. So that, Lord, we would live in faithfulness and obedience to all that you desire of us because you are so worthy of our obedience and praise. And it's in your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we need to understand about our passage this morning is that Romans 6, 1 through 14 is the apostle's response to the end of his argument in chapter 5. At the end of the prior chapter, Paul ends his discourse by making the following statement about the law. He says in Romans 5, verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In 6.1, Paul raises a question that might be asked by a critical reader who wants to abuse or otherwise misconstrue what the apostle just concluded about the role of the law. And the question Paul addresses is this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, Paul immediately answers his anticipated challenger with another question. He says in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And the obvious, question, the obvious answer to that question is, we can't. In fact, if we restate Paul's latest question in the form of a statement, the statement establishes the main point of Paul's argument. He who died to sin can no longer live in it. That's Paul's primary burden. He who died to sin 
can no longer live in it. This is the key truth that Paul sets forth to explain in the rest of his text. Now, in verses 3-4, Paul lays down the foundation of his argument, which is this. The believer is profoundly united with Christ in his death and burial so that we would walk in newness of life. Let's look a little more closely at the apostles' logic. Paul begins with a premise. Now, a premise is something stated to be true without, pro- without providing any further proof. Okay? And Paul presents his premise in verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. In other words, as a result of our salvation in Christ, we are profoundly united with Christ's death. Notice the therefore at the beginning of verse 4. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Other versions might lead with the word therefore, but it's there in every translation. So Paul is drawing out another fact from his first fact. Because we have been united with Christ's death, Paul reasons that we were also united with Christ's burial. Okay, you with me so far? Now notice the phrase, in order that, that introduces the rest of Paul's reasoning. In the second half of verse 4, Paul writes, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see what Paul's doing is he's reasoning further, providing a third fact. The reason why we were buried with Christ is that we might walk in newness of life. So the structure of Paul's reasoning is this. A is the cause of B. And C is the purpose for which B was brought about. Let me explain that. Because we are united with Christ's death, that's the A. We were also united with Christ's death, that's the B. And we are united, I mean, with with Christ's burial. And we are united with Christ's burial so that we would also be united with the newness of life to which Christ was also raised. That's the sea. So here's Paul's argument so far. He who died to sin can no longer live in it. Why? Because through our union with Christ's death and burial, we have also been united with Christ in newness of life. And this idea that we are united with Christ in newness of life This idea takes control of Paul's argument. The rest of Paul's argument further explains how this came to be and what it means to us now. Paul addresses the believer's newness of life in two parts. The first part is our future. And the second part is about our present. Paul's discussion of our future is the subject of verses 5 through 7. However, It's in the context of this discussion that Paul presents one of the most important explanations of his argument. And it's this. Deprived of its force and power, the believer is no longer enslaved to sin. 
This is really important, so I'm going to repeat it. Deprived of its force and power, the believer is no longer enslaved to sin. Again, let's follow the argument. First, Paul speaks to our future in verse 5. He writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is, given the indisputability of the believer's participation in Christ's death, it is beyond question that the believer will also experience a future bodily resurrection. Now, listen carefully to the Apostle's reasoning in verse 6. What Paul says next is the key fact that establishes Paul's claim he just made about our future and what he's about to say about our present. It's it's like a hinge holding both parts together. He writes in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul explains why the old self was crucified with Christ. And he presents two reasons. The first is introduced by the words, in order that. The second, by the words, so that. Again, Pay careful attention to the structure of Paul's logic. The logic of Paul's reasoning is A enables B and B enables C. So Paul states A, that our old self was crucified with him, that is Christ. The intended result is B, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And the condition brought about by this result is C, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, it's a fair question. It's fair to question whether or not Paul is saying the same thing twice for emphasis or really that or or whether there really is some kind of dependency upon these last two statements. There is indeed a logical dependency between the two clauses and the dependency of C upon B is made apparent by the expression might be brought to nothing. Or, in your version, it might read, might be done away with. The expression, might be brought to nothing, is the translation of a single Greek verb. And the verb means to cause a person or thing to have no further efficiency, or to deprive someone or something of force, influence, or power. Now, I want to bring to your recollection Christ's illustration in one of his confrontations with the Pharisees. I'm thinking specifically of Matthew 12, verse 29. Our Lord said, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In our current text, sin is is like this strong man who must first be deprived of his strength and power before his possessions can be plundered. So the apostle's logic goes something like this. Paul states, A, that our old self was crucified with him, that is Christ. As a result, B, 
Sin's presence in the life of the believer has been deprived of its force and power. And as a result of this condition, see, the believer is no longer enslaved to sin's desire and influence. And Paul provides a final justification for this part of his argument. In verse 7, Paul proclaims, For one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, because we are profoundly and mysteriously united with Christ's death, there is a very real sense in which we died. And because sin has no power over one who has died, sin has no power over us. Okay? Now, in verses 8 through 11, Paul continues the explanation of his claim that we too might walk in newness of life. It's what he made, the claim made back in verse 4. And as we've just shown in this prior paragraph, in the prior paragraph, Paul had in view the certainty of the believer's future bodily resurrection. Paul's emphasis in the current paragraph shifts to the reality of the believer's newness of life in the present life. There's certainly some busy language going on in these verses, but Paul's main idea boils down to this. The believer is dead to sin and alive to God. The believer is dead to sin, but alive to God. Now, Paul introduces his reasoning in verse 8. He writes, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Again, Paul presents his readers with another logical relationship. If A is true, then B must also be true. Okay, that is, if A, we have died with Christ, then B, we will also live with him. In the first half, and the first half of verse 9 reads, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Paul emphasizes the essential fact that supports his claim in verse 8. Christ died. But the apostle's point here is that Christ is no longer dead, but lives, and he will never be subject to death again. Paul next, Paul's next thought elaborates upon this. The second half of verse 9 reads, Death no longer has dominion over him. Now the implication is that previously death did have dominion over Christ. But this implication raises an interesting question. Didn't Christ say on the night before his death in John 14, specifically verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So granted, Jesus was talking about Satan and Paul is talking about death related for sure, but different nonetheless. But the question is still a fair one. In what sense? Did death have dominion over Christ? Well, a more precise expression of Paul's sentiment is this. Christ willingly submitted himself to death's dominion. Death had dominion over Christ because death had dominion over the elect sinner. That is he in whose place Christ stood. Christ took as his own our own putrid rot of sin so that we could take as our own his righteous life. 
Christ yielded himself to the dominion of sin so that we would be freed from it. Paul further explains his reasoning in verse 10, and he does so with an expertly crafted economy of words and poetic structure that, quite frankly, illustrate Paul's skill as a writer. In Romans 6, verse 10, Paul writes, For, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, notice Paul's statement is both a contrast, Christ's past death versus his present life. But there's also a sense of escalation. That is, the weight of Paul's argument seems to move towards his statement about Christ's life. He doesn't say, he doesn't say Christ died to sin and the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but... The life he lives, he lives to God. There seems to be an escalating move towards the importance of the statement about the life Christ now lives. And this leads us to verse 11. That is both the climax of Paul's reasoning as well as a transition within his larger train of thought. Paul proclaims in Romans 6:11, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, up till now, Paul has been arguing logically, each point supporting the next point. But there's a shift here. Paul's language changes from proposition to exhortation. It's the climax of Paul's reasoning in the sense that everything Paul explained thus far, he explained so that he could make this demand of his readers. Now, the word consider, the word consider is not the best translation of this Greek term, at least for whatever my humble opinion is worth. Paul doesn't mean take this under advisement by consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He's not saying, well, we'll try this one on and see if it fits. No, look again at verse 10 in context. Paul calls the believer to live to God, not in the sense of merely imitating Christ, but in the greater sense of actually being identified with him. A more precise understanding of this imperative, consider yourselves, is recognize yourself to be. Listen, Christ is more than your example. I mean, let's face it, even the unsaved have positive examples in their lives. But believer, you possess the indescribable privilege of being profoundly and mysteriously united with Christ's crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, and life. As Christ, so I. As Christ, so you. Because Christ lives to God, recognize yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let's summarize Paul's argument so far. The believer has died to sin and can no longer live in it. Why? 
Because of our profound union with Christ's death and life, the Father raised us up so that we too would walk in newness of life. Sin has been deprived of its force and power in your life and mine, and thus we are no longer enslaved to sin. And this is the basis of our future bodily resurrection, but it also has implication in the here and now. Because of our profound union with Christ, we must recognize ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now remember, verse 11 also marks the movement of Paul's larger train of thought from logical argument to implication. Having raised the chief implication of his argument, that's verse 11, Paul raises a number of additional exhortations that must follow. And this brings us to Paul's next paragraph. In verses 12 through 14, Paul expresses further exhortations that follow as a result of verse 11. And these exhortations make it clear that the truth of Paul's argument are effective weapons in our ongoing battle with indwelling sin. Now, before we go further, a few words about indwelling sin. The fact that the believer is in battle with indwelling sin is an obvious implication of Paul's anguish expressed in, verse, in chapter 7. Same book, Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this battle is also the context of Paul's glorious exaltation in the beginning of chapter 8. Verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be sure, sin no longer threatens the eternal glory and privileged inheritance of the believer. We know this among many promises, but specifically John 10, verse 28, the words of our Lord promise, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, as a result of this certainty, some believers view indwelling sin as nothing more than a spiritual inconvenience or maybe at worst a harassment. After all, the cross vanquished the power and eternal consequences of sin. Quite true. Nevertheless, nevertheless, sin continues to threaten the believer on this side of glory. And the risk of spiritual injury is very very real. Though indwelling sin is impotent to achieve its desired end, and that desired end is your eternal destruction, it will not rest in its effort to shipwreck our practical life of faith. And it is unwise, it is unwise, brothers and sisters, to think that because we are eternally secure, sin's lust for our destruction can be safely ignored. It cannot. Sin's ambition for you and, uh, and me have not changed since the days of Cain. The best expression of this is in Genesis 4-7. And believe it or not, I think the translation that best hones in on this is the New English translation, which reads, Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you. It did then. It does today. Listen. Spiritual maturity and the vitality of the soul 
are not earthly rewards for the spiritually lazy. Some believers will arrive at the end of their days spiritually maimed and disfigured, grieved by their meager possession of fruit prepared for the honor of their master. Why? Because they did not take seriously the Bible's many warnings against the threats of indwelling sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul explains, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. May behoove you to look at the larger context of that passage. But I'm here to tell you that indwelling sin is a tireless and ruthless enemy that can inflict very real damage upon your sanctification and mine. And mine. And the believer is called to fight indwelling sin in the power of Christ's victory. And this is the sense of Paul's exhortation in this portion of our text. Recall Paul's chief exhortation in verse 11. He said, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, a reasonable question to ask in response is how? I mean, what does daily life look like for the believer who's truly convinced of Paul's words? Well, Paul answers this question by providing some additional exhortations that follow on the heels of what he said in verse 11. Paul further exhorts in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen, read that again. If indwelling sin was not a threat to your sanctification and mine, this exhortation would be completely unnecessary. But it is necessary. The battle is real. The threat is real. Sin will employ every deceit and intrigue to persuade you that it still commands authority and is due your submission. Remember the little illustration about the corrupt CEO? On staff, present, but impotent, nonetheless, still exerting its force and influence to try to haul you back into your memory of its rightful authority over your life? Indwelling sin, same thing. Make no peace with this liar. Sin will not respect the boundaries of any treaty. Sin is like a fire that will burn until everything is destroyed. And Paul exhorts his readers to be wise to sin's ways and actively fight sin's efforts to reestablish its rule in their lives. In verse 13, Paul elaborates by presenting another collection of ideas that help us understand what verse 12 and ultimately verse 11 look like. And there are actually three imperatives. The second two are in contrast with the first, as indicated by the word but. And the first imperative is a negative one. So another prohibition. In the beginning of verse 13, Paul writes, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, this word members, it's used frequently by Paul elsewhere in the letter, as well as in many other epistles. And the word literally refers to a limb or a member of the human body. Paul's word choice almost certainly follows from his use of the term mortal body in verse 12. He'll also use that term later in the letter. The terms mortal body and members are best understood 
as a reference not just to the physical body, but to that part of our being that remains subject to the corrupting influence of indwelling sin. It's what Paul later addresses as the flesh at the end of chapter 7. And so in context, present your members refers not just to our physical bodies, but to our thoughts and our affections as well. So the essential meaning of the text is this. Don't submit yourself to sin, to be used by sin for its purposes. Now, the word but functions like a hook between this negative imperative and the two positive imperatives that follow. Okay? And those two positive imperatives are in the rest of verse 13, where Paul continues, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, note the parallelism of Paul's terms in his negative exhortation with these terms used here. Present, members, instruments, righteousness, unrighteousness. Notice also the language of the first positive exhortation. Those who have been brought from death to life. This corresponds almost exactly to Paul to the language of Paul's chief exhortation in verse 11, affirming that the logic of the apostles' earlier argument in verses 1 through 11 is the driving force behind the implications presented here. Paul's meaning is this. Submit yourself to he who is the true ruler and king, your new ruler and king. He who has united you with the death and life of his son. Bring every vestige to bear for his purpose and glory. Make no room for sin's mock reign. And Paul closes his argument in verse 14, where he writes, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And not only does this verse provide further justification of the imperatives we just talked about, but this verse also connects all of Paul's argument in verses 1 through 14 back to his statement in chapter 5, verse 20. And so the verse also functions as the conclusion to Paul's entire argument and the ultimate answer to the question in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Answer, we can't, as carefully reasoned through verses 3 through 11 and whose implications are presented in verses 12 and 13. The ultimate why, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, that's our quick tour through Paul's argument. So let's back up a little bit now and summarize. Let's, let's try to tap into the burden of the text. What, what, what's really the author's burden? What is Paul really burdened to communicate to his readers? And there's two big ideas that Paul wants us to understand, and those ideas are critical in our battle against indwelling sin. And the first big idea is this. The believer is profoundly and mysteriously united with Christ in his crucifixion, his death and burial, his resurrection, and in his present life. 
Throughout this argument, Paul repeatedly emphasizes our union with Christ. Look down again at the text. Look in verse 3. We're identified as being baptized into his death. In verse 4, we are buried with him as well as raised to newness of life. In verse 5, we are united with him in a death like his. We are also united with him in a resurrection like his. In verse 6, we are crucified with him. In, verses, in verse 8, we died with Christ and we live with Christ. Folks, Paul is doing something more here than expressing analogy. There's something going on here that's more than simply figurative language that Paul is using to illustrate something about our current condition. Rather, Paul is actually assigning Christ's condition to our own. Now, there are a couple of places where Paul uses the words like or as to connect us and Christ. And those are usually markers of figurative language. But the majority of Paul's language throughout this passage establishes direct correspondence between the believer and Christ. Paul's argument is not as Christ, similarly I, but as Christ, so I. In other words, there is a very, very real sense in which the believer's condition is profoundly united with Christ's condition. We often recognize Christ's work as substitutionary. Christ died in our place, and we are good to recognize this. But as wonderful as that is, and it is wonderful, Paul is describing something even more than judicial substitution. Our relationship with Christ is wrapped in even greater mystery, greater generosity, greater privilege. Theologians often refer to this as the doctrine of the believer's mystical union with Christ. They use the word mystical because there's a mystery. We don't fully understand the workings of these relationships with Christ. And it's the truth, it's this truth that prompts Paul to exclaim in Galatians 2. This is why we read Galatians 2 earlier today. In Galatians 2.20, Paul proclaims, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, there's a beautiful expression where both uh, the mystical un- the believer's mystical union with Christ and the doctrine of substitutionary of judicial substitution come together. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's your union. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's your judicial substitution. So a beautiful compact economy of words bringing together two beautiful doctrines, two beautiful truths. Back to the doctrine of our mystical union with Christ. The challenge this morning is not disbelief. Few of you, if any, struggle with the affirmation of this truth. The problem is being too quick to check this off as a theological fact while failing to be in awe of this in a visceral 
palpable kind of way. It's not enough simply to be informed theologians. So perhaps a good place to start is the realization that Christ did not rise, Christ did not die and rise again to be your life coach. Jesus Christ did not come into this world for the sake of your personal ambitions and worldly fulfillment. Listen, the universe and our place in it was created for God's glory, not ours. Whether you know it or not, at the heart of your sin is a hatred for God simply because He is God and you are not. And because of your sin, you must die and suffer the condemnation justly due God's enemies. But God, because He loved the unworthy sinner, raised up His innocent Son to take upon Himself our sin and bear the full weight of God's justice in our place. And if you have been made to know faith and repentance in the inner man, then know for sure that God has waged a frontal assault upon the beachheads of your heart to claim you as his own, to save you from eternal destruction, and according to today's text, to join you into a profound union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Paul explains, because of our union with Christ, we have power to overcome personal sin. Our union with Christ is the means by which sin loses its practical stronghold upon our minds, our hearts, and our will. And this brings us to the second big idea that Paul wants us to understand. And the idea is this. Our union with Christ's death and life has dethroned sin's reign in our life, liberating us to live to God in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, because of our union with Christ, sin is dethroned. Confident of their profound union with Christ's death and life, Paul wants his readers to recognize that sin's dominion over them has been defeated. Sin rules no more. He wants his readers to reject sin's temptations and press on in faithful service to God. And Paul emphasizes this in a particularly vivid way. If you've been listening carefully to the text, you will have noticed by now that Paul personifies sin. He uses language that treats sin as a person Rather than, idea, that rather than an idea. But even more to the point, Paul speaks of sin as a defeated king. Look at, look at these terms. Look at the word enslaved in verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or how about the word dominion in verse 9? Death no longer has dominion over him. Again in 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Or the word reign in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Again in verse 12, the word obey, to make you obey its passions. Even the word present in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God. Listen, isn't it obvious? The one who reigns and possesses dominion 
has power to exert control and command allegiance. These words are terms that correspond to a ruling monarch. And Paul's intentionality is undeniable. As vividly as possible, Paul is describing sin as a previously reigning king to whom we were once enslaved, but whose reign has now been defeated, whose reign has been dethroned. Jesus Christ has dethroned sin's power and rule in the life of the believer. Because of our profound union with Christ's death and life, sin has been shamed, deposed, and defeated. Sin no longer has jurisdiction over our lives. The subjects of sin's former dominion have been liberated to faithfully and joyfully serve the true king. As Christ, so I. As Christ, so you. The life Christ lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. But while sin has been dethroned and its reign in our lives vanquished, indwelling sin, hear me, has not been destroyed. Sin's authority is dead, but not its voice and certainly not its ambition. And though impotent, to command those he once enslaved, sin has moved its mock rule into the shadows of the heart in order to deceive and entangle. So let me conclude this morning by briefly considering a specific application that might help clarify these truths yet a bit further. A believer's struggle against addictive or habitualized sin can be a towering stronghold seemingly well fortified against the Spirit's work of conquering grace. Years of sinful thought or deed create deep ruts of muscle memory and thought patterns that can be sources of debilitating defeat. In fact, the frequency of battles lost could even rob the believer of gospel assurance at one time or another, replacing a heart of joy and gratitude with guilt and shame. But I'm here to tell you the degree, the degree to which you deepen your grasp of your profound identity with Christ, with his death and life, the degree to which you are convinced that sin's reign and authority in your life has in fact truly been dethroned, likewise deepens, leading you to persevere in God's means of spiritual maturity. You see, because Christ's death, in some very real sense, is your own, sin's claim upon you is dead. Though sin once commanded your allegiance, sin has lost its power to rule. With each, with each passing day you, that you grow increasingly convinced of your profound union with Christ, Sin's stronghold grows increasingly brittle. And eventually, like the walls of Jericho, sin's strongholds crumble before the work and power of the Holy Spirit. To be sure, 
Leave no doubt about it. The voice of indwelling sin still speaks, trying to convince you that sin remains the ruling monarch of your heart. But it's all empty bravado, a desperate, gasping attempt to deceive, though spoken and asserted with confidence it once possessed. As Paul exhorts, so then you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under law, but under grace. Preach this to yourself every day and, pers- and faithfully pursue the means of grace God has ordained for your protection and spiritual livelihood. Remind yourself, as Christ, so I. Because Christ died, I died. Because I died, I have been set free from sin's reign. Because I have been crucified with Christ, the body through which sin enjoys its livelihood has been brought to nothing. With the result that I am no longer enslaved to sin. I have been set free to present myself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Oh, Lord, as we prayed earlier, there's much here, Father, and it's just not enough for us to be smarter about what these words mean. Father, we are weak. We are limited. We wrestle in sin's facade, often believing the swagger of its bravado and duped once again. Father, give us ears to hear, hearts, minds, and wills to understand and to spend time pondering this great truth. To know, Lord, that there's a mystery here in operation far beyond what we can comprehend. But it does give us the tools to look out and recognize this world is not the world it purports to be. In fact, this world isn't even what this world will one day be. There's a day coming, Lord, when your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And your saints and their righteousness will be revealed for all the world to see. Why? Because like Abraham, we believed. And it was reckoned unto us as righteousness. And so what we desperately pray for, Lord, is that we would live out our lives in a very practical way that believes that and lives in ways consistent with that truth. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.